I think their own fear. Yeah. The family that I worked for, they had, they have a carefree life Mm -hmm. by my estimation. They're in a different economic class than I ever will be. And their lives are comfortable and their lives are safe. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, they get this idea that to be a good parent, you need to invent things to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I love this story because I think that it's the perfect, it's the perfect example of what this mom is like. She was working for most of the time that I was working with them. And so she would often be gone for the day and then come home in the evening and she would sit down to have dinner with her daughter and then later her daughter and her son and she would get so nervous about her daughter hurting herself with her fork Mm -hmm. that she would find through the years, I've seen her find many different ways of dealing with this fear, not allowing her daughter to have a fork, trying to buy softer forks for her daughter. And then the one that would upset me the most would be a constant watch out for your fork, be careful with your fork. Mm -hmm. And the girl, she would have trouble eating and getting through her dinner. And part of it was because there was always somebody nearby being like, be careful with that fork. Yeah. Yeah. She's probably developing like a mild form of PTSD. It's like a combat veteran. She's just in like normal daily situations, but senses danger lurking behind every corner for God's sake. Where does a person even buy a softer fork? (laughs) Amazon. I guess so. (laughs) I guess so. Oh, geez. Oh man. Are we recording? We soon. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, there's like, so there's two approaches to doing these podcasts, right? There's like, the uh, the Dave Rosowski approach, if you've ever listened to his podcast, mm-hmm. where it's like, where we're like mid-conversation and then 20 minutes in, it's like, oh, we're recording. Or then there's the more official welcome to the show. I split the difference without meaning to, but I'm going to tell you why I do it too. It feels weird to start by welcoming you to the show because then you kind of, you know, the way that you, you like pose for a photo when you know that someone's about to snap a photo, you get on your best behavior for a conversation and then suddenly your mind dries up of content. Mm-hmm. You screen out all the good stuff. I'd rather just casually do what we're doing right now. Boy, I screwed that up, didn't I? We were doing fine. I messed it up. I think we're doing well. I will, uh, I will give you a sneak peek into what my day has been like. Okay. I was really nervous about being on the podcast and I know... There's no reason to be nervous about being on the podcast, but I've gotten into trouble before by me knowing there's not a reason to be nervous should be enough to make me not nervous, but it never is. And so I was like, is there anything I can do? And so one thing I was doing was listening to a couple of podcasts. And at first I didn't want to, because I was like, what am I doing? I'm just going to like memorize these podcasts and come in here and be like, do you remember when you said this on the podcast? So I'll try not to do that, but it did help a little bit. And so I have had this experience of hearing you do this. And yeah. sometimes it'll be, you know, 10 minutes in and be like, and now I'm talking to Ali Fisher. Yeah. And then sometimes it'll be like, this is the magnet podcast. This is Becca Shaw, And we've never had a conversation before. Yeah. 
I'm doing it. I'm just repeating what I heard on the podcast no, earlier doing today. Great. You're doing great. Wouldn't it be fun if you only gave Pat May's answers to my questions? You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. We're talking, of course, today with a great Kailana Decker. Kailana, thank you for being here. A little bit of backstory. Kailana is a little bit nervous for this podcast. This is Kailana's very first podcast. All the kids are listening to this right now. They're shitting their pants. They're saying, what? Her first podcast Everyone's on a podcast now. Everyone's doing a podcast. Everyone listening to this is currently also recording a podcast. This is the podcast where they listen to other people's podcasts and then comment on it in real time for their own podcast. This must be very unusual. Moving on. This is unusual. Yeah. I'm glad that there was water provided. Oh, yeah. Water, it's a safety. It's not only good to stay hydrated, but it's like a safety. I suck on water bottles the way I used to smoke cigarettes. It's just like a thing to kind of keep my face occupied. Yes, something to uh, touch and something to keep touching. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. What what are you nervous about with the podcast? I'll tell you what, I get nervous for every single one of these podcasts. It's the worst. I'll tell you what it is for me. It's knowing that my words are going to be like... That's it. Once they're laid down, then then I got to like own what I said there. It's very upsetting, very nerve wracking. Yes. Most nervous. I could go on and on, but I'll try to focus on the most nerve wracking part of being on the podcast. Please. I think I'm afraid of the exposure mm-hmm. because I, this weekend I went home back to Chico, California and I haven't been home in in three years. And so there was a lot that was getting stirred up then. And that's kind of, that feels kind of like how my life goes. Like there will be in long stretches of, of me confronting no, nothing of, of emotional importance in my life. And then it'll just explode. Mm-hmm. And I feel so exposed and so vulnerable in those moments that I'm afraid I'll cry. Mm -hmm. I understand that. I just visited my parents the other day and didn't have an emotional, I had a lovely visit with my parents and I see them more frequently than three years. But uh, it's amazing the way that going home will kick up all this psychic debris that you thought you had completely under, under wraps. And then all of a sudden, it's just churning away. <laughs> no, oh my God, there I am confronting feelings I haven't felt since third grade. Thanks for that. Oh boy, good. I feel super small now all of a sudden. My mind is clogged. I can't keep up a conversation. Uh, that's good. And the thing is, nobody's doing anything to like stimulate it. It's just kind of like you revert a little bit. I don't know what your experience is of it, but that, that's, I got I to gotta work twice as hard to not revert for no good reason. That's my experience of it too. There was no major incident that occurred while I was there and it's still being there and, and seeing the same things and encountering the same people, even without incident was 
that exact feeling. I was like, I am four years old yeah, and I forget everything. Yeah. How we were, we started off by talking about kids and parents and, and, uh, keeping kids safe. And that's a, a topic I'd like to come back to because I have strong opinions on it, even though I never do anything with kids and I have no kids of my own. And yet I feel entitled to have a strong opinion. How, what kind of kid were you? How do you, how did you like see yourself as a kid and how do you think other people saw you as a kid? Wow. It's hard for me to look back and separate what I think of myself as a kid from the way my mom saw me as a kid Mm -hmm. because she is a really strong personality who has a major investment in the, the lives and the stories of her children. So sometimes she'll say things like you were born the woman I've always wanted to be. And on the one hand, that's nice. And I see that it's meant to be, empowering and that it's meant to be that she admires me and that it she's saying it out of love on the other hand when I was born I was an infant Mm -hmm. and I I didn't have a lot going on back then and so when I look back pulling out what I think about it can be a little difficult I think that I was definitely quiet and watchful and just i remember often as a child seeing things and and wondering why sometimes i would see other kids having fun and being like what's going on here more so than being like that looks like fun i want to play with them mm-hmm. being like how are they doing this? And I think that felt so natural to me that it was later on in my life when I got involved in improv, which is so collaborative that I think that is how I was as a kid because it's how I was when I was 23 years old and starting improv in New York and feeling like, like watching performances and thinking, how are they doing this? How, how so? I guess, how are they having fun? Uh-huh. Do you not have fun when you improvise? I have had fun before. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. All right. So what's the experience for you then when you're improvising? I get nervous. Yeah. And then I think that as I went up through the levels that I started to feel comfortable in my nervousness in that place, place of pushing and striving. And so I've done so many shows where I've just been like so amped up and it's not fun. Yeah. It's just stress, but at least it's something (laughs) like (laughs) uh, it's rare that I'll, I don't, I've never been in a show where I didn't, at least come out and do something. Yeah. But I have done a lot of shows where I've had no fun. Uh And I think that part of that comes back to being uh, exposed Mm -hmm. 
Because the second that I feel like I'm not having fun, I want to hide that from everyone. Mm -hmm. I can relate, I think at least in part to a couple part, a couple pieces of that. I can relate to watching other kids uh, have fun and kind of being more curious at it than wanting to participate. Like I've never, I've never in my life wanted to participate in anything. (laughs) It just seems like not my place. And more often than not talking to other improvisers, the thing you kind of commonly hear them talk about is how much fun it is to improvise. And I similarly uh, don't have much fun improvising. (laughs) It's very rare to have fun. And and it's kind of the same thing for me too, of this, this weird sense of resenting exposure. I have a hard time. This is something I'm working to try to overcome, but I have a hard time making eye contact with people before and after shows even during shows when I like greet the audience, it's one thing if I'm doing like monologues, that's a really easy thing. I I have this strange ability to feel very comfortable being intimate with a room full of people if I'm doing monologues. But if I'm about to improvise, I immediately enter this like shame spiral and can't make eye contact with anybody. And the experience of improvising is almost never fun for me. Mm. So what the hell keeps us doing it? Why? Why do you do it? Why? I'm very familiar with the shame spiral. So I think the shame spiral was never enough to pull me away from my love of improv. There have been times when, there have been times over the last three years when I've been involved with the Magnet Theater that my life has been unhappy or out of control, but each week I still go and I take a class or I do a show. And I think that my, my, first of all, almost pathological devotion to it, devotion to a class or to a team, that there are good things about it and bad things about it. Good things being that I've built close friendships with people that I've been put on teams with. Like there's something that is, that that's almost like, um, like superstitiously devoted inside me for my teammates. Mm -hmm. And that doing that, even though there were so many times when I wasn't having the fun I hoped I would have, for the sake of my teammates, really, that I've gotten lost in my own thought. Why do I keep doing improv? You know, it's because it was because I was trying to avoid your question. (laughs) I was trying to explain what it was like to have kept doing improv, even when I wasn't having fun. Why do I keep doing improv? You don't need to answer it if you don't want to. I want to. I'm going to face it head on because I love it. That's good. It's a good answer. Well, there's something interesting to having something, uh, being devoted to a team, being devoted to a class, being devoted to, to a room full of people. I, I think that there's a, there's a lot right there. In you know, if I may be a little bit of a cultural critic, right? But I think like our particular culture um, 
lacks a lot of uh, values that are essential in, to usher us to a sense of like responsible adulthood and and if not peace with ourselves then I, I think we as a culture in this particular time this is going to be so grandiose I apologize but let I, me roll out the carpet yeah, for yeah, you please please I think that there's like a certain amount of like personal dignity that we lack because we live in a culture that's extremely oriented to keeping us feel like a bunch of adolescents for as long as we possibly can and not really having to like face ourselves or face responsibilities or be ushered in any way to learn how to mature and how to grow and how to kind of cope with what life is going to be throwing at us. So I think that there's a lot of like flailing around without much of a sense of purpose or much of a sense of devotion or much of a sense of like a higher reason for anything or, you know, and you kind of occupy yourself a lot by looking to have fun. It's one of the reasons why I don't like fun so much. I feel like fun is very cheap. Mm. Fun doesn't like, doesn't take any work to have fun. You can buy fun. So it's like, there's something like kind of like artificial sweetener to me about fun. It's like, I don't like it. <laughs> you get a little hit, but like it leaves me feeling kind of queasy after the fact. Yeah. Like and I'm off fun right now. I'm off it. <laughs> I can't be bothered. It's all green vegetables and, and uh, discipline for me. <laughs> Uh, but, but to, to that point of like, there may be something just to the idea of practicing a devotion to something. I mean, that devotion is one of those words that feels a little like medieval now <laughs> kind of doesn't feel like it has a place in the way we live our lives, but there's something to like needing to attach yourself, needing to commit yourself, whether you're enjoying it or not, but knowing that there's a room full of people who once or twice a week need you to be at, at your best or need you to kind of keep your bullshit at the door so that you can be a functional part of the group. I can see a value just in practicing that, even if the performance itself doesn't give you the buzz that you want. I don't know. For sure. For me, something that I'm learning now and it feels so good to keep learning. I'm not the best at school. So I forget sometimes that learning is still an option for me. Yeah. But I've been learning that sometimes the way that we can be there and be supportive for other people who are in our lives. So somebody, a partner or a friend or a teammate, sometimes the best way that we can be there for them is to try to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because every, every team that I've been on here at the magnet has been so supportive of me and full of the most wonderful, excellent people. And still, I, I have always been so careful to hide a lot of myself from them in an effort to, to keep things running smoothly. Mm-hmm. And of course you want things to run smoothly. But sometimes, sometimes I'll feel confused. I won't understand why I can't have fun or why I, I end a, a rehearsal or end a show feeling frustrated with only myself mm. and that sometimes allowing yourself to be exposed to people who are in a position to be supportive of you can, can be the key to unlock the next level. Mm. Can, can you talk about that a little more? Sure. What part? It all seems so intuitive to me. (laughs) 
exposing yourself to people in in that position uh, being a key for you? I think, you know, there, there are different levels of exposure. For me, I can be extremely covered up. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be to the point where I, I would tell not even a single person on my team, I don't feel good about my performance in that show. And part of it is because I have also been in ensembles where there are people who talk, talk about that, who are so open and talking about that, but maybe not always open to being impacted by what they hear, Mm -hmm. that then it can kind of drag the dynamic down a little bit Mm -hmm. because you have somebody who has, has insecurities, who is very vocal about them, but who no matter what you say, it doesn't lighten their load. Mm -hmm. And so I would really keep myself from saying things, even like I, I don't feel great about my part in that show and not saying that to anybody, not your teammates or a partner or a friend, it, it just builds up inside and then it, it can really like fill you up and turn you into something else, mm-hmm. turn you into your fear, turn you into a monster fueled by fear. There's a, so at what point is it? And I'm not asking this for an answer. I don't, I don't think there is an answer. I think it's just, you use your own judgment, but at what point is it, uh, um, kind of, uh, uh, obsessing over your own insecurities and forcing that to be the, the focus of everyone's attention. And at what point is it being yourself and, and not withholding from other people? I, and this is something I've spent my whole life struggling with of like, um, in not wanting to burden other people with my feelings on things, what I will end up doing is numbing myself from my feelings of things and then feeling like I have nothing to say or contribute, and then basically being like an invisible person in the room. Right. And that's not a healthy thing to do. <laughs> no, but I love it. I do it all the time. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but there's a danger to it too, in that like if you do it too consistently in your life, you do kind of lose touch with, or what's my point of view on things? You really don't know. It's hard to kind of sense your boundary you know, I think it does come down to boundaries. I've been thinking a lot about boundaries lately. I've been going to therapy. Just, I just go, I go, and I go. And oh, therapists love to talk about boundaries. Mm-hmm. Boundaries are important, but I'm not going to talk about them because I'm still learning about them. I think something I've I have experienced that kind of is kind of related to boundaries is if you look at a boundary like this, the boundary between talking to a stranger, you have more natural boundaries with a stranger. Mm -hmm. You have fewer natural boundaries with a friend or a teammate because you know them. And, you know, with exceptions, maybe, maybe there's a teammate that you don't get along with. That's a different scenario, but with somebody who is your friend, 
this is the thing is that I have so many friends that I care about and I know they care about me and I still don't tell them how I really feel sometimes even on the level not nothing about them like you were a bad friend to me because you did this on this Mm -hmm. day but being like I'm sad today I still even saying that now I'm like oh I don't want to say that I don't want to say I'm sad or I'm nervous or anything like that I don't want to put that on somebody else but I think that receptivity is so important. Mm-hmm. And it can feel scary because you have to be vulnerable to an extent to be receptive to what people say. And it can be hard to learn if you've built up a lot of defenses against it. But that my experience, when I tell my friends, my closest friends, I feel sad today. Then that was me. Sorry. <laughs> then what they want to do is help me feel better. Right. When you're not asking for someone to change it, you're asking for someone to witness it. Is that witness it? Yes, and I think part of why people don't say it is because. It's hard to be vulnerable. And it's also easy to imagine inconveniencing someone else. Right. By telling them if we are not having fun. Right. They're they're so so part of this like idea of of like having people like witness you without trying to change how you're feeling. I, I don't mean it in like this self-centered witness me now way <laughs> witness me but just in this thing of like you know when people can see you as you are you see other people as they are it, 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 there's a validation that takes place in that sense of your feelings aren't locked inside of you in in this kind of too close to home place where you're wondering how you really feel about anything you're all kind of all over the place when it's there and it's present and people can see it it it, it there's a reality to it. And so this idea of witnessing is simply an acknowledgement that it's okay that I feel sad or it's okay that I feel empty or whatever it is without needing to change anything about that. I have permission to feel exactly as I'm feeling. I don't need to withhold that. I don't need to change it. I don't need to hide it from myself or anybody else. I, I was in a class um, years ago that Rachel Hamilton taught and she would begin every class by having everyone stand in the circle and we had to go around the circle and say, my name is blank. And right now I'm feeling blank and, uh, it should be the easiest exercise in the world. And I found it impossible because I realized in that class, I have two feelings that are accessible to me at all times. I'm either feeling anxious or I'm feeling okay. Uh. And it was actually like really, really interesting to be in the class and have to like practice at the beginning of every session to like think through that a little bit and realize that I'm just kind of lumping. I, I'm not, I, I have a really underdeveloped palate for like the flavor of how I actually feel. I've lumped everything into either a bland okay or a bland anxiousness mm. and starting to unpack that and realize there's a lot going on here that's not anxiety, that I'm just calling it anxiety. 
And there's a lot going on here that's more than okay, but I'm just calling it okay. It was very scary. But I think I did some of my most honest improv in that class when you have to risk like looking at yourself like that. Rachel Hamilton is great. Yeah. I was at Camp Magnet in 2015 and she was there too. And one evening, it's beautiful there. The sun is setting and we're on the volleyball court and there's a group of us playing volleyball and Rachel comes over and she wants to play with us. And so she's playing and she's serving for our team and she's having trouble getting into it. She's there and she, she's trying to be invested, but it, I'll never forget because she turned to me and she was like, how do you make yourself want the ball? Hmm. Because it would come over and she would go for it. I'm, I'm going all around now. You can hear me now. I'm on this side. Surround sound. Volleyball. So she would go for the ball. It's very cinematic. <laughs> Which is horrible for a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but she would go for the ball and she just kept not getting there. Yeah. And I, I was amazed by her honesty in such a small moment where she wanted to be ambitious for the ball. You need to be ambitious for the ball to play the sport. But she wasn't. And this brings up creative or not creativity receptivity again because she was really asking mm-hmm. she was turning to the people who were you know diving for the ball and and acting like fools to try and get this volleyball and she really wanted to know how to do it and after that she sat down on the grass and watched us play volleyball but I'll remember that because It's easy to get embarrassed. And I think that being able to stick with it through embarrassment and find the ways to let out, you know, let out the stops on that embarrassment. Mm -hmm. How else can you be a professional fool? Yeah. I I think when it comes to performing there, I've spoken to a lot of people who, seem to be very honest when they tell me that before a show, they put themselves into a headspace where they're the fucking bomb. They just like amp themselves up and get and re- really energetic and just kind of put themselves in a place where they know that everything they do is great and they're going to get out and do it and kill it. And I just have this like overwhelming confidence, I'm very jealous of, <laughs> can't lie to myself that way. And I never go into a show with that state of mind. I I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I read one time that Anthony Perkins, who played um, the original Norman Bates in Psycho, before a take in a movie, he would just whisper to himself, "What are you doing? What you you have no talent? What why are you here?" And that would be like he would almost like negatively amp himself. He'd amp himself down instead of amp himself mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. and that's what it kind of took to put him in the right headspace to be like open and available when he was performing. And I find that really interesting because I sympathize more with that. And I think that there's a quality to certain people where everything about performance is about that you, you take this thing about yourself that you manage to somehow turn inside out and use over the course of a performance. There's a little, there's a little bit of, well, I'll get into this in just a second, but you, you turn this thing about yourself inside out for the performance and I think that there are certain types of people who 
have to start more from that place of acknowledging that like, this doesn't feel pleasurable for me. Mm-hmm. This is not me owning a room. Uh, and if I try to own a room, I'm just going to become so withdrawn and detached and have no, never want to reach for the ball because I'm not playing that kind of game. It, it's like inaccessible. I'm, I'm outside of that looking in and I don't really, I'm just not like feeling it. And I think that there's a different quality to those performers. I think that some people have, there's an energy that they project that reaches out to the audience and kind of radiates. And I think other people have something that's a little bit more of of, uh, of a magnetic thing. There's a little bit more of you have to kind of come to them and you have to kind of be curious about what's going on behind their eyes. And, and you have to kind of like watch closely. Not that they have any secrets and not that they're being super subtle or anything. It's just a different kind of performance. It's coming from a different place, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I think to part of that is the people who amp themselves up into, into being, you know, a, a, a big deal at the beginning of a performance, they seem to be the ones who are like dedicated to having a, a, a fun time. And then there's people like you and me who it doesn't feel fun that way. It's a different experience. You don't even know how to have fun. Yeah. I feel that way sometimes. I feel that way a lot. I feel that way whenever I'm in a situation where other people are having fun. Going, like being invited to like a birthday party or like dancing with people. I love dancing, except when there's other people around doing it. And then suddenly it seems like the worst. Not to sound whiny and complaining. I'm reading this book right now um, that's talking about um, like how people deal with their, their wounds. Like one of the ideas is no matter how you were raised at a certain point, you're kind of like wounded, you know, and how people cope with those wounds. And one approach to it is you, you try to transcend the wound. You try to just fly above it. You use that wound as like inspiration to keep yourself pushing and, and, and rising and so you have this one category of person who's very kind of ambitious and very like the very far extreme cliche version of this is like the arch conservative who's like, everyone should be pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And I have no compassion or sympathy for anybody whose life is a mess because you just got to plow through it. Mm. That kind of thing. Grandpa. Whatever, grandpa. Whatever that wound is that they're experiencing, it's just providing fuel to their booster rocket to get as far away from it as possible and mm-hmm. not think about it. And then on the very far other extreme, you have people who have such a hard time getting away from their wound that all they are is that wound, that you never escape the black hole of that wound and you you identify yourself as that wound. And at the very, very far extreme of that are the kind of like born losers, the people who, who no matter what, are, are always at the victim end of everything. You know, two like very intense extremes. So this book talks a lot about the kind of middle way between those where you're able to acknowledge and incorporate whatever your wounds are without losing sight of them, but also without identifying with them either. That they are what begin to give you character and what begin to give you a source of strength. It's an idea for whatever reason these days I'm finding very interesting. There's something about that too. I'm like, I'm always very curious. I ask this question a lot on this podcast about people who don't like being the center of attention. 
but who are chronic improvisers. Mm-hmm. Where you're putting yourself in that position where people are constantly watching everything you're doing. And I'm very interested about why that is. And I think it has something to do with that notion of there's like this part of you that you're neither trying to pull away from nor trying to sink into, but it's important somehow that you like air out your wound publicly. Mm-hmm. Not that you're like crying in front of the audience or anything like that, but it, it, it becomes like a source of motivation for you to feel like for 20 minutes, it's important that people kind of witness uh, what I have to say right now. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this idea. It's a stupid idea and I apologize for it. I love this idea. Witness me for 20 minutes. Witness me and seven of my closest friends. Yeah. I think it's so hard to walk the middle path. For me, I've been trying to get more comfortable with taking a couple of steps in a direction I'm not comfortable with because I like to, I like to think conceptually like these two extremes of somebody who's trying so hard to get away from their wound and then people who are wallowing in it. And I think that, so in the middle, you have someone who's either crushed in the middle because for me, I won't want to take a step toward associating too much with being a victim or I don't want to take a step toward not acknowledging how I feel or what has happened. And so there's, there's like getting crushed between them, but then there's also like walking the balance beam between them. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes taking a step either direction is what can propel us forward. Like saying I'm sad. If you're somebody who doesn't like to say that, trying to say it, even though you don't like to say it is probably going to be beneficial or somebody who says I'm sad a lot, but never sits down and does something simple, like write out what's one thing you can do to feel less sad today Mm -hmm. that, but that some people, some people really build up a resistance to, to the smallest steps because they imagine one step in that direction will mean that they're running toward that extreme. Mm -hmm. If I sit down and I write out one thing that can make me feel better, some people feel like that doesn't work. That's not going to change my life, writing something down on a piece of paper. I'm not going to be the sort of person who's like, it works. It magically works. Like some people are still really resistant to things like yoga for similar reasons where they don't want to be the sort of person who does yoga mm. without considering that, that you today taking one yoga class is still you. Maybe you don't like yoga and you don't do it again, but one class doesn't, doesn't automatically turn you into whatever you have resistance against, even if it might be a little superficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's interesting to say that uh, I'm uh, kind of dealing with uh, a, someone close to me right now who is kind of trapped in that place of uh, everything is horrible and uh, there's nothing to be done about it. And so, you know, talking to this person and trying to break it down into like, well, how do you take what you want and make it something a little bit more 
feasible, something that you can grasp? And then what are steps that you can take to actually go and, and get this thing that you really want that's going to make you feel a little better about yourself? And um, y- you can kind of talk and, and, and calm them down and actually start to come up with like tasks that they can do. Oh, I can do this right now. And that will be the first step towards what I want and, and away from this feeling of like total helplessness. But then as soon as you're not there to support it, 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 you know, they kind of like fall back into this feeling of how like fate is against me and, and whatever it is. And I just talking with this person who I'm, I'm kind of relating to right now, the perception I have is wallowing in how fate is against you feels a little more exciting than have to do the boring, tangible thing of writing out what's one way that you can not be miserable right now. Yes. It, it's almost like you you feel more grandiose as a person if you are the victim of all of fate is just conspiring to make you miserable. As much yes. as you hate the misery of it, you're also in your own personal mythology, a very important person who's on the receiving end of this. Right. And that importance, that kind of enchantment goes away a little bit when you realize that like, oh, I don't have to be this way. I don't have to feel this way. Right. But that before that point to think the universe is against me. It's exciting because it's the whole universe thinking about you. I get it. And it, it, if it's the whole universe thinking about you, then it gives that feeling of me such an intense quality. You know what I mean? I, I don't know a way to say this that doesn't sound like complete bullshit, but there is a thing of like, you want to feel real. I don't think a person, I don't, my experience at least is that you don't feel real all the time. You have certain encounters and, and certain experiences that in that moment you suddenly feel real. You feel present, you feel alive. But a lot of times it, it, there's a quality of like fogginess and fluidity to real life that sometimes is hard to kind of like grasp. And I think that feeling super miserable and indulging in super misery is one way that you can feel the sense of like, well, I'm real. You know what I mean? I think that there are other super misery. You know what I mean though? I do. And it, it goes back a little bit too to like, you know, that question of like what you share with your group about how you feel about stuff because there is that one person who will talk about their feelings, but really they're just this kind of like black hole. It, it, they, they talking about their feelings is a, a means of kind of dominating other people and sucking in attention. I'm, I'm saying this in such a shitty way, but, but yeah, I, I am criticizing this. This is not a healthy behavior. It's sucking in people's attention and goodwill. And um, the more more you give to them, the more they need of you. There's a kind of psychic vampirism going on with it. Uh, You know, not a good quality. And then there's the opposite of that, which is the person who really does need to, you should tell people how you feel. You should bring yourself to the room right now. But you're chronically either numb yourself to that or, or... slap a coat of paint on top of it or just ignore it completely. Uh, um, You kind of like sacrifice yourself for the good of other people or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, the goodwill of the group. And there's a middle way between those two. You know, not that I meet this kind of person very often, but on the rare occasion that you meet someone who has like a, 
a sense of like personal honesty and personal dignity. A person who's like genuinely tells you what they think and how they feel. There's a quality to them that sort of um, is disarming. Like I have people in my family who who pride themselves on their honesty, but I don't consider them terribly honest people. It, 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 being honest for them is a way that they have of getting to be kind of critical of other people, but it's mm. all under the guise of I'm just being honest. Right. But when you meet someone who's genuinely honest, which means that they are open and receptive to themselves and to you and speak to what they see and speak to how they feel, there isn't this that same quality to it. It doesn't have to do with kind of interpersonal games between people. There's just this disarming ability for them to kind of be transparent around you and let you know, let you know how they feel, but also let you know their boundaries too. And there are other times where they would just openly say to you, I don't want to talk to you right now. <laughs> There's, and I, I, I haven't met too many of those people, but whenever I have, it's always, it always feels like a wake up call of like, Oh, that's, that's how you want to be. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. To, to move through the world self-possessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, centered, knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I mean, it's just like continues down the path of like obnoxiously overblown fucking conversation. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kaylina. This is- I, I, I think I'm doing this to you. No, I think no, this no. is happening to you because I'm here and I'm rolling the carpet out. No, I don't think so. It, it, it Well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> maybe a little bit. I think that there is something to like, there's an element to performance and an element to improv that is just about, it feels good to make people laugh. And there's an element to performance and an element to improv that, that is about, it feels good to pretend to be another person or it feels good to just feel your brain working in that way that it works when you're improvising and it feels good to play with other people. But I think there's another element too, where, where there is a certain thing of it's when you're improvising that you catch these little glimpses of yourself from time to time, you go from this kind of like foggy fluid feeling of things not being totally real to something comes out of you in an improv scene. And, and you kind of have a sense of like, Oh, I just met, a little bit of myself. Mm-hmm. That was that was a real part of me that just came out. Yes. You know what I'm starting to love even more than laughter is spontaneous one person applause. Yeah. Somebody who you've said something, you've revealed something true about yourself that they recognize probably in themselves. Yeah. And it's immediate. It's so immediate where some every once in a while and my very close friend, Serene Lee, show after show, this happens with her. And I think that watching her and thinking about this, pe- thinking about people responding to her because they recognize it, mm-hmm. but that's kind of, kind of gotten me interested in this, in, you know, sometimes saying something and, and not expecting it'll get a laugh and not expecting anything, but then to just hear up in the seat, somebody be like, like it, it's so exciting. It's like, you know, of course we want the laughter and I want the laughter and I give the laughter. It's all about the laughs, but <laughs> I, I like the, I like the, I like the recognition in that spontaneous applause. Because mm-hmm. there's a feeling of, of connection there. I think that's what it is because you can laugh 
sometimes you laugh because you don't understand. Like it's something is funny because you're like, what is this person thinking? But that I think when the, with this spontaneous applause, just one person doing it is that it's like they are moved in a, in the same way that we are moved when laughter comes out, but that it is moved by recognition rather Mm. than moved by, I'm not sure how, how to say it. Surprise. Mm -hmm. I, I guess that's a big difference because I laugh. I love surprises. I love when bottles, when you open up a bottle and it just sprays out all over the place. I, this is like my favorite joke these days. It's just a bottle, a shook up bottle getting opened up. It, that's my favorite joke right now. But that that's different than, than looking at somebody who you care about and hearing them say something that's important to them and realizing as they're saying it that it's important to you the same way. Mm. That's what I think happens when there's just one person out there going like. There's a, um, there's a comic called the history of humor by Eddie Campbell that I read once and then have never been able to find ever again. (laughs) It was in some like esoteric British magazine and then it like didn't end up anywhere. Have you ever read it by any chance? No, but I love the sound of it. It's, it's pretty great. And, um, and a, a lot of it is like tracing like humor and like art through the middle ages and the Renaissance. It's more interesting than that description sounds, but something that struck me in it, he, he talked about, you find kind of two classes of humor. You find like gargoyles or these like demons and monstrosities in sculptures and paintings that it's really clear that whoever made this was enjoying themselves when they made it. Like the most creativity goes into painting hell, you know what I mean? Never yes. in heaven. It's always like demons and stuff with this like heightened distorted monstrous thing. That's clearly very funny and they clearly had a good time doing it. And then the other place where you see it in, in like ancient art and medieval art is these like terracotta statues that just kind of show scenes from everyday life. You'll see like someone getting their hair cut. <laughs> um, and there's a quality to it. He, he, in the book, he kind of com- contrasts it with like religious iconography and art. And you see there's a very serious quality in the religious art. And then in this kind of scenes from everyday life, there's something very relaxed about it. And something that, I don't know if you would describe it as funny, but like humor seems to cover it pretty well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's always stuck with me. I think that there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that. That if you look at the stuff that you respond to in shows, you're frequently laughing really hard at behavior that would be the sort of equivalent of like gargoyle behavior. Mm-hmm. People acting completely nuts. Pat really, May. Pat May, Kyle Gordon, mm-hmm. you know, not to, and I'm, I don't, that's, that's a compliment. That's not an insult, but, but seeing people behave in really insane ways that are filled with inspiration and surprise and just keep you so delighted. It's like your brain is, your mind is carbonated. It's just bubbling over with joy and delight, you know? But then you'll see other people improvise. Charlie Nicholson straddles the line very nicely between both of these. He's very adept at, at doing both of these. But sometimes you'll see someone improvise where they're not doing anything particularly 
amazing. They're just kind of being truthful. They're just kind of acting honestly. And it feels so warm and so delightful and you spontaneously react to it. And it's not that surprise that's pushing laughs out of your chest. It's more of this quality of seeing something every day in front of you, but it being very relaxed and very non-fussy and you kind of see it with fresh eyes. I don't know. With Charlie, I love Charlie Nicholson. We were in our level six together and I, I, I've just always really admired, you know, the, the whole package, the yeah. whole Charlie Nicholson package. I think that with Charlie, that he has an amazing ability to see a person from every angle all at once mm-hmm. and that he loves what he sees. Mm-hmm. So he's able to love. And there is something that's humorous about it because I think that he gravitates to the mundane details like uh, Charlie. Charlie has stayed over in our guest room before and he has a little toothbrush that we'll find hidden around the house. And this is one of my favorite things about Charlie. We'll find it balancing on top of a picture frame or sitting on top of my toothbrush and it's because he loves what knowing what everyone does with their toothbrush. <laughs> and so I think that he's so uniquely playful because he, he loves those little things so much mm-hmm. that he wants to try on lots of little different things. Yeah. And that that's part of what I love so much about him. He also, he, he will do things like leave little gifts around just for the delight that it will cause you in the discovery of the gift. He he's so he, he really does straddle that line because there's very few people I can think of who are as um, actively committed to trying new things to just like improvising in a new way or throwing something in a show that like no one's ever seen before. Just, just to try it Mm -hmm. just because let's be playful and let's have fun. And and it totally willing and game to follow it and see where it's going to take you and and really just like throw yourself out there and be inspired. But he's also adept at being very emotionally connected and with it and responsive and and will improvise just these beautiful scenes that are all about the nuance of this relationship and all about these characters. Uh, um, encountering each other where there's nothing special or fancy to the scene. You're just, there's a transparency to it. That, that's the word that comes to mind more often than not when I think of the kind of scenes that I love watching it is transparency. There's mm-hmm. something that feels very clear. I, it, I'd be hard pressed to point out why it's particularly funny. There's just a kind of like clarity and precision to it. I feel like I'm getting an unimpeded view of these characters' behavior. Transparency is good. I focus sometimes on being obvious Mm -hmm. because it's sort of like a forced transparency Mm -hmm. because it's so easy to get lost in what we imagine something could mean Mm -hmm. when it comes to other people. But that the more, the more you understand people, the more you understand each person and the more you're able to 
have an encounter like that and and be transparent. Um, but if you if you're not there yet, then the step toward transparency, I think, is being obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, because some people, some people, it's amazing to me in improv how often someone will have an idea, and then because of the nature of improv, the idea won't land the way they imagined. And then instead of clarifying the idea, they will try and go along with, with the, with the shape that it's taking. And that's good to follow the shape that the show takes, but it, it's not necessary to give up on something and have it be, be pulled apart. Like you're, you're doing everyone a favor by being obvious mm-hmm. and, uh, and being transparent is like the really seductive, just like, uh, like really laid back version of being obvious. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, it's very frustrating to play with someone and very frustrating to watch someone play who lets it go that easily. It, it, sometimes watching people, I, I kind of think of it as like, too much yes and in a scene somewhere along the way you internalize this notion that it's all about yes and which i think is not true Mm. i I think a scene just requires one yes and (laughs) a really good scene you just have to do it once and then the rest of it is just do the scene but you will sometimes see people who yes and on every single offer and before you know it they're in the weeds and know that they're in the weeds and keep on going in the weeds. And there's a kind of like helplessness to it almost. That's like frustrating to watch. Mm -hmm. Going back to yoga, you were saying yoga before there's this notion in yoga of like the balance between strength and softness Mm -hmm. in every pose you look for that, that proportion, bring your awareness to what is strong and bring your awareness to what's pliable. And that's meant to then bleed into like the ethical behavior of a person as well, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. <laughs> but I think that that is a quality that really good improvisers have. There's a firmness of intention. I'm not letting go on this. And if you didn't understand where I was coming from, allow me to clarify for you. I will retain firmness on this move. I'm not bailing on it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you're not pliable and soft and open to let the wind kind of move the ship. Mm-hmm. You totally are. It's just you need the sails of the ship to be very strong so that they can catch the wind. And then the wind blows in whatever direction it's going in. And you use that to kind of navigate in the direction that you're aiming. Sometimes people will veer too much towards firmness. And it's just, here's my idea no matter what. Let me shut you down and we're only doing this. Or I'm going to strong arm everything you're saying and doing to fit my original intention. Grandpa. Grandpa. Or there's the opposite of you just don't feel empowered in your own scene or your own show. You feel that you constantly have to give in to other people or constantly have to take on other people's ideas. And there is no firmness. And so you end up just getting blown around the stage, but you never really go anywhere. You never really do anything. You don't have an experience. Oh, gosh. I've had plenty of shows like that before. Yeah. Part of improv, of course, is support and you can go years identifying as a supportive player that doesn't always fill, fill yourself up or bring yourself into it. Mm-hmm. 
you really can get by that way because a team needs support and each individual player needs support. I, I feel like I've kind of fallen into that trap before because then, then I'll start to think, you know, like, how do I become a better improviser? Be more supportive, but not being able to see that you need the strength in addition to the softness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just found out that there's a yoga studio one block from my apartment. I've lived there for three years now and it's on, ooh, I'm really knocking the microphone around. Soon you'll have more experience with podcasting and then you won't make that kind of amateur mistake again. I'm so embarrassed. Yeah. So it's one block from my house, but it's in the way that's the opposite way of the way I go when I walk to the subway. Mm-hmm. And so for three years, I had no idea. That doesn't have much to do with what we were talking about. I just can't get over it. Yeah. That, you know, you ever have that dream where you're, like in your own home and then you suddenly realize that there's like a door that you've never noticed before <laughs> and you open it up and you're like, holy cow, there's a whole other part of my house that I've never been to. I haven't had that dream. Really? <laughs> oh man. But I'm only getting back to dreaming now that I'm not working my unhappy job anymore. Your unhappy job was blocking out your dreams? It was blocking out my dreams. Wow. It was. I, I I wouldn't get much sleep because I love to stay up late and then I would have to get up early. So that was a little bit of it. But then even, I, you know, I would be exhausted and I would lie down to sleep and just immediately just like start vibrating, like no chance am I falling asleep. Uh. And then when I would finally, finally just force myself to sleep, it would be nothingness for three or four hours and mm. then the alarm all delta waves, no theta waves. Oh yeah. Oh man. I've that got sucks. those delta waves. I didn't know about delta waves and theta waves. I'm 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 just taking what you're saying and and I'm just repeating it. Delta, I might be getting this wrong, so someone's gonna have to research this and tweet at us. Uh 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 delta waves are or the brain waves that are being produced when you're in like deep dark slumber. Mm-hmm. Theta waves are being produced when you're having uh, um, very vivid dreams. Alpha waves are associated with kind of clear um, wakefulness, very like uh, uh, uncluttered wakefulness. And beta waves are when you're really preoccupied and it feels like it feels like your muscles are really tight in your brain. Hmm. I thought that was cool. I think that's very cool. Um, I'm happy to hear that you're dreaming again. Yes, I'm back on dreams. That's good. I'm surprised you never had that dream. I, that's been a lifelong recurring dream of mine. Um, can I? Am I allowed to ask them if they've had that dream? Of course. Have, have you had that dream? The dream is that oh, you're. Man, how embarrassing! Evan wasn't paying. He wasn't listening. All. Oh my god! The dream is that you're in your home, and it's a dream, and you come across a door that you've never seen before in your apartment, and then you open it up. You realize there's like a whole other room in your in your home that you've never seen before. <laughs> Fair. Mm. Mm. Joe, how about you? Have you had this dream? 
here I assume this is now this is <laughs> this is why it's so important that a person keep themselves learning, as you were saying before, Kilana. Because here I am naturally assuming that my experience is everybody's experience, and it turns out I'm the only person in this room who's had that dream. It's a really nice dream. I feel that way a little bit when I walk into somehow we ended up with a guest room, and that's where Charlie Nicholson spends some of his time, but. I feel that way when I go in there because I just don't go in there. Yeah. And so then when I do, I'm like, wow, there's this room. We should use this room, but it's okay. Charlie uses the room. Yeah. Having a space for Charlie to arrive when he wants to <laughs> arrive, I think is a good enough use for the room. That's a, That's the dream. Yeah. You just always keep a window open for Charlie whenever yes. he wants to come crawl in. Does he actually he come through, through the window? The window. <laughs> <laughs> we gave him a key. <laughs> uh, there's a magical quality to to Charlie Nicholson. Yes. Um, Doing object work with Charlie Nicholson was, yeah. I think, really what that was me seeing the door I hadn't noticed before mm-hmm. in improv because I, I took classes at UCB and. I appreciated the structure and I felt like I was doing well with the structure, but that I, I had no idea who I was, what my voice was as an improviser to fill up that structure, Mm -hmm. which is why I came to the magnet because I come from a, like a, a kind of an alternative schooling environment called open structure. It's all very like we sit on the carpet together. There's no desks. Things are due on Friday, but only if it's done, Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. And I think there's a little, a little taste of that at the magnet of encouraging people to, to understand themselves Mm -hmm. and that being the way forward in improv, which is, which is so important to me, which was so, so important, like fundamental to me still doing this today. And, uh, so you know, I, I went up through the levels and uh, and my boyfriend and I, Greg Zahentner and I went up from level one all the way through to our first megawatt teams. And, um, you know, I got on that first team and you know, that was the, that was your last uh, season as the director for megawatt. Mm-hmm. So you, you put that whole team together, Ladyhawk. Mm-hmm. And that was my first experience. And you probably remember that, that we had a reputation for being patient players uh and we were patient but i think that they would also say that when when we were you know kind of kicking our feet sometimes mm-hmm. too um i i love lady hawk to this day and now i'm on a musical improv team that's called kitty hawk fought really hard for a different name but it was meant to be <laughs> Too bad. The universe is against me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but uh, I I loved being on that team. But I was so nervous to be on that team. Yeah. And it was it was around that time, like at the end of that, that Charlie got us all together for this project object work, and it going from level six, which is like you know, your, your last class, your last big class before you can start auditioning for a team that I felt a a strong sense of obligation to do it right. Mm -hmm. And when you work with Charlie, 
the only way to do it right is to do it real and getting immersed in that. And we rehearsed for object work for months and months and months before we ended up being a director's series and being there and, and like having all of the stuff, all the things that Charlie would bring and the papers and pens and skulls and leaves and, and, and bubble wrap and food, all of it. It was so real. And I liked improv because of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And then to have that imagination be made real was what is, I find, I think like my defining moment as the improviser that I am today. Yeah. Do you remember like specific things that Charlie would encourage? to create the circumstance for it to be what it was? Or was it just, is it one of those like undefinable things of the room felt warm? In the beginning, I didn't understand what he wanted from us. Yeah. Can you, I'm sorry. Can you back up? Can you, can you describe object work to anyone who didn't see it? Yes. So object work, what it ended up being was there, there's a group of performers. I think there's nine of us all together. And then sometimes Charlie Mm -hmm. and for the shows, he would bring different items and the items were incredible for the shows. Like one time we had a show that was lipstick. One time we had a show that was a real pizza. We've had one time it was a stick and none of us were very excited about that one. Yeah. Even the word stick. <laughs> stick. You're supposed to be like stick in the mud, uh. stick up your ass. <laughs> it's never a great thing. <laughs> Um, it, it also, the stick was so unphotogenic. Mm-hmm. It's not about the pictures, but then when you look at the pictures and it, during the show, you're thinking this is a stick. And yeah. then you see the pictures and you're like, Oh, look at that stick. Yeah. But, um, but that's what it would be. And, and always an audience volunteer would come down and, and pick up the items and, uh, talk about them and then decide which one they would want featured in the show. And so we, we went through, a pretty experimental process while we were developing that show. Like the first time that we did it, we used many different items. Charlie brought a trunk of stuff and we just kept bringing it out and bringing it out. And that was really fun too. But it was, it was nice when we moved more toward like the focused attention of all of us working on one object. And during the process I have a theater background, did a ton of theater from the time I was a teenager into my twenties in California, all very like community theater productions. And whenever the director would give notes, I would be like, this is so great. They're, they're telling me how to do it. And Charlie doesn't work that way. He is the sort of person who nurtures a certain environment and then hopes that it will grow. Mm -hmm. You know, he carefully picks he carefully, he carefully curates each project and then just hopes that it will grow. Mm -hmm. And so at first I I felt frustrated, like, what does he want from us? And then I just stopped trying to figure out what Charlie wanted and started watching what other people were doing and to see these people that I knew and that I cared about be so silly and to, to 
I'm thinking of my first rehearsal and Justin Anderson was in it and he had these markers and he was, he was just so invested in these whiteboard markers and it, and it sounds so simple, but to just stop and actually watch it and watch him, you know, like walk the markers around and the markers talk to each other. And eventually the markers dive into a toilet and go into a separate other dreamy water world and to see, to see the fun. I guess watching that fun was how I learned to have fun Mm -hmm. on, on this stage specifically, because this is like home base for me. I've done a lot of shows on this particular stage with this group of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if I went another place, I think I would have to learn again how to have fun. Yeah. But that that was doing object work was uh, the most I ever learned about having fun. Well, it sounds uh, uh, like creating the circumstances to, to uncork a very childlike way of letting your surroundings give you a sense of of play in that way of if you watch a little kid, a little kid of a certain age before they're like eight years old or so, you just like aggressively refuse to be bored by anything. So you have a bottle and an empty cup of tea in front of you. That's going to be turned into, uh, uh, you know, whatever, a mm-hmm. kind of Green Gables or whatever, and with an N, and with an E, whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> Megan's been watching Anne of Green Gables. So now when I think of an imaginative child, I think of oh, Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> but like this thing of like a, a, a child's imagination is constantly animating the world around them and constantly letting that world suggest stories to them. I love watching little kids lie like nobody's business. It's one of my favorite things in the world to watch the way that a little kid will lie and then seconds later forget that it's a lie and absolutely be convinced about what they're telling you. They live in this like beautiful twilight zone where like nothing is exactly true or not true. It's very, very, it's a very malleable headspace that they're in. And that's actually not too far from the way that Charlie just approaches like a theater space in general. If you watch him move through a space, he has a little bit of that energy to him. But it sounds like a situation where you're being given permission to uncork that kind of imagination and and let these ideas kind of come to you. It's true. And it really seemed like he was trying to harness that childlike energy of Allowing yourself to come up with the next idea. I've thought about ideas. Oh gosh, I think about ideas. I just think about ideas. I don't have the ideas. I just think about them. You're close though. <laughs> I'm close. One more step. One more step. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you tried not thinking about the ideas? <sighs> yes. <laughs> and, and I only think about them more. <laughs> yeah, ain't that the way. <laughs> um, but But to... Because that's the thing, and that's that's what was so fun about object work, and and similarly, what's fun when I see children play with objects, particularly objects that are not toys, mm-hmm. but toys too. Soft forks, for example. Soft forks, hard, hard forks. forks can be really fun. <laughs> uh, that it's it's always 
it's always changing. Mm -hmm. I think that children, because of their, the newness of them, that they haven't learned to be afraid of change the same way that a lot of adults are afraid Mm -hmm. of change. Because like kids, for the most part, unless you come across a pretty uh, neurotic kid, I think I probably did this when I was young, that I would only want to play with my toys in one way. Mm -hmm. Be like, this is a doll and I play with it like a doll. And this is a notebook and I write in it like a notebook. But that for a lot of children and the spirit of object work was like, it's a doll now, but now it's a boat and now it's an umbrella. And now I'm throwing it through the air. And when it's in the air, I'm thinking that it's a spaceship. Mm -hmm. And it's the ability to let go of the fun we had for more fun in the future. Yeah. You, I, I think about that sometimes of like, this sort of goes with the idea of like, you only need one yes. And in a scene, I feel like every scene needs now I'm not talking about how to, how to build a scene to get to the game or how to, or how to like squeeze the most comedy out of a scene. I'm talking more from like an acting point of view of that kind of like imaginative experience of a scene suddenly feeling alive. Mm. Every scene needs the kind of like one key in it. It, Like I, I think back to like being a kid I remember like playing with like shoes or ketchup bottles or, or, or whatever, and always turning those into spaceships. And there's kind of like the thing where you do like the special effects shot and the star Wars opening shot where you have like the shoe come like over your head and you're like looking <laughs> on the underside of it. And like that one shoe, it, it becomes like the key. Your, your imagination projects a spaceship onto it. And all you need is that one real key. And then all of a sudden the rest of the story starts like coming to you. Mm-hmm. I feel like a scene also requires like the one key to it. You need that thing that kind of like opens the door in the scene and then the scene starts coming at you and, you know, instead of you kind of engineering it, I I think to wrap it back up to what you were saying before. So in my mind, uh, I, I believe that there are moments where, where this kind of like collective imagination will, kind of come out like I think that there's something sort of like an electromagnetic field to the imagination it can you know I mean like it's it's like a communal thing you know and if like the imagination in a room is really flowing and people are tuned into the same wavelength you can be surprised by like it's almost like you get things from the audience sometimes that are not in your head but somehow you'll start getting like ideas or names or scenes will start to like that, that happens in really I know I'm in a really good scene when I start naming my scene partner names that are coming to me as I'm opening my mouth and I'm like, this is a good one. Mm-hmm. There's a real, there's a feeling in the air tonight. I'm getting, you know, this is coming from someplace else. Uh, um, I, I, on one level, I kind of think that our job as actors in, in an improv show is to do what we can to kind of invite the presence of this like electric field in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is finding the one right key that is going to open it up. So suddenly we're all collectively seeing the same thing in our, in our imagination. But part of it is also being obvious because it's the way in which you won't do the obvious logical thing that you would really do that suddenly obstructs 
that whole field. You do the kind of creative, unexpected thing, but it comes from this like shallow part of your brain. I think of it as the false imagination, <sighs> right? There's like the real imagination, which is kind of bigger than you, and you're you are a part of it in the same way as you're part of an electromagnetic field or like gravity. It's like a field. It's a force that's there that we tune in and out of. And then there's the false imagination, which is just the storehouse of the way that your brain has learned how to like compute. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of clever ideas come from the false imagination and a lot of inspired ideas kind of come from like the real imagination. And sometimes the best way to open yourself up to the real imagination is to be super obvious with your choices. Don't, don't be clever. Don't be creative. Just do the obvious thing. And like one obvious thing leads to the next obvious thing. And suddenly before you know it, you have that one key and the door opens and it's like, oh, there's a table in the corner and we're all seeing it somehow in our imagination. But you fuck that shit up when you outsmart it. Yes. And instead of being obvious, you get all clever and whatnot and you do like the unexpected thing. Mm-hmm. And it's funny for like two seconds. And then you feel the sense of like tiredness in the room. It's like a light bulb that like burned out too quickly or something. There's yes. just this feeling of like all of our energy collectively was like raising to this point, And all of a sudden your cleverness just like pissed it all away. And now we're all like a little bit tired because we wasted energy on this. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know? Yes, I do. I love that idea of the false imagination. I've felt that before, especially when I put pressure on myself to have ideas. Yeah. And then, then I'm usually pulling from the false imagination. Yeah. If that's the way that I'm, if I'm, that I'm trying to propel myself forward. And I've never, I've, I've never heard it conceptualized that way. And for me, that's so helpful because I, I love intuitiveness. Mm -hmm. I love experiences that you, that are so obvious that it's obvious beyond words, but those moments are really rare, both in life and on the stage. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's, it's understanding what small steps can we take toward that, that feeling, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, an explosive feeling, you know, like fireworks, you know, something fireworks are very obvious and we love them for that reason. But that, that like, if you're talking about the false imagination, then the false imagination is somebody who's trying to put fireworks together and they're like, well, I'm not going to have it explode in the sky. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, but I want, I want the fireworks to explode in the sky. That's what I'm, I, I like to be involved in a process that has faith that if you, that if you assemble a firework, then the firework will explode in the sky mm-hmm. and to not feel that, that pressure to be like, well, putting a firework together isn't exciting. So I'll do it in a way you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. And then try to build that into a culminating moment. But what a letdown when the firework doesn't explode. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it, it, to, to kind of tweak that image a little bit, it, 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 part of the joy of the firework exploding is also being surprised in how it explodes, like what the explosion is. Mm. And if you've kind of taken on that executive decision of like, well, just building a firework isn't interesting. So I'm going to do this thing. 
you are never really delighted by the out. You're never surprised. There's never, all right. So for me, the, I have no religious tradition in my life, but I occasionally celebrate Passover with members of my extended family. And I quite enjoy Passover and I quite enjoy the ritual of pouring a glass of wine for Elijah and opening the front door for Elijah. I found that a really apt metaphor of like, you're hoping for a guest to arrive and you don't know if they will or not, but you keep a place at the table for them. You hopefully they'll come. I think that that's kind of the best that you can do in terms of having those like firework moments that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. We can't really insist on a guest arriving. All that we can really do is kind of have a place at the table for them and have the wine ready and hope that they come, Mm -hmm. you know? But in this case, it's like lack of faith that a guest will arrive And in that moment of like hesitancy and that moment of lack of faith, you kind of like, um, I don't know how how to like fill this metaphor out. (laughs) You, you, in the moment that you doubt it, you've now completely closed the door on Mm -hmm. the possibility of somebody arriving. So now the best thing that can come out of this experience is going to come out of your individual ingenuity. And what it's going to lack is this sense of like, I think what I like about Elijah coming to the table is this feeling of like an otherworldly guest arrives. Mm -hmm. And that's how it feels when that flow is happening in a room, when suddenly somebody accidentally makes a move at the end of a Harold that ties together like nine different trains of thought all throughout the show. And everyone's amazed. And it feels like this guest arrived out of nowhere. You're all dazzled by what just happened. Has this otherworldly quality to it. Mm -hmm. You can never get that from the fake imagination. It's always... You can never get it because someone determines that it's going to happen. It always happens by this like quirk of good luck. I don't know. (laughs) I think that. I think that's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Soft forks, man. (laughs) Parents, let your kids play for God's sake. They got to go out there and like touch things in the real world and for fuck's sake let them eat with real forks if they cut themselves that's how they're going to learn not to jab at their faces with a fork not doing anyone any good by giving kids soft forks limiting their imaginations goddamn all of you yes do you want to trap your child in their false imagination for the rest of their lives exactly right no (laughs) kailana decker it's been a delight talking with you thank you for being here thank you lewis kailana plug away What, what would you like people to know I'll plug Body Work on Wednesday nights, Kitty Hawk on Tuesday nights, and come visit me. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. There's a guest room, so, you know. Yeah. Charlie will probably be in it. (laughs) But we we have an air mattress, too. Cool. Nice. Kailana, thanks for talking. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening. This has been the Magnet Podcast. As you know, if you enjoyed the podcast, please uh, mention us on social media or give us a rating or review or something on iTunes. That's helpful. I'd like to thank a few people. I think you know who I'm going to thank if you're a regular listener of the podcast. I'd like to thank our engineer today, Joe Glasgow. I'd like to thank our producer, Evan Ford Barton, also of Body Work with Kailana Decker Wednesdays as part of Megawatt. I'd like to thank our executive producer, Ed Herpsman. I'd like to thank Armando Diaz, you know, for just being, you know, great and inspiring all of us. But more than anybody, I'd like to thank you, the person listening to this podcast right now, because without you being you, none of us could be who we are. You know what I mean? We all go together and that's a beautiful thing. 
Thank you for listening. Be sure to give us a nice rating in exchange for the nice compliment that I just gave you. I made you feel good. Now it's your turn. You know, make us feel good too. You know what I mean? Quid pro quo. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't eat. So (laughs) bye everyone. Thank you. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.